Well, it's hard to believe that another Christmas season has come and gone, huh? Um, just seemed like yesterday it was Halloween and we were bemoaning the fact that Walmart already had Christmas stuff out. So uh, <laughs> now Christmas has come and gone and the Mayans were wrong. It looks like there will be a 2013. I mean, I'm pretty confident, only a couple more days. I guess there's still time, but... Uh, uh, 2013 is right around the corner. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we have this morning's message? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope that uh, you have not been disappointed in your Christmas. But uh, sometimes we're disappointed, aren't we? We're disappointed with how things go. We're disappointed with what we receive. We're disappointed with uh, how Christmas is. Uh, I've told this story before, but it's one of my favorite stories about Sam uh, and about Christmas. And when he was a little guy, we actually have this on video. So one of these years, I just need to bring the video and have you guys watch this. It'd be far better than me telling. But one year, uh, Sam found out that donuts came in a box of 12. He did not know that that was a possibility until uh, October or November one year. And uh, I think we went to Krispy Kremes in Denver, and we got a, a, a pack of 12 donuts. And you know how those flat, flat boxes of, of donuts look? Well, Christmas morning at Grandma's house, he had a package that was a similar shape and width and size as a dozen donuts. And he grabbed that thing, and he's like, it's donuts. It's going to be donuts. And he starts tearing into it, and he's getting, and of course, you know, we know better, right? Nobody takes donuts and wraps them for Christmas. And he takes that, and he grabs open the box, and oh, the disappointment that came across his face as he says, close. <laughs> And they weren't even glazed clothes. I mean, they were, you know, we've all been there, right? We've all had that one thing we wanted or that, that one gift that we hoped for. And we get through all the packages and it's not there. Or we thought it was one thing and it's, you know, for guys, clothes, right? Um, there's those moments of disappointment in our life. And not receiving what we want for Christmas, that's a rich people's problem, just so you know, right? I mean, and, and that's for people who can afford to give gifts to people. That's kind of a first world problem. Uh, we have all sorts of interesting first world problems, you know, like not enough hot water for our showers. Um, that'd be a first world problem. Uh, you know, not a hot enough coffee on a cold winter's morning. That's kind of a first world problem. Yet all these things create disappointment in us because we have expectations about how life should be. We have expectations about how hot that coffee should be, how hot that shower should be, what should be in the box. We all have expectations, and oftentimes in our lives, we find ourselves disappointed. 
it's interesting because this doesn't just happen with things. It happens also with people. Uh, those of you who are married, don't raise your hands. You ever been disappointed? You ever found yourself, you know, maybe during a sermon doing one of these? Because you have expectations that aren't being lived up to. And so you're, you know, busy kind of nudging them to, hey, you're kind of disappointing me in this area. Listen up, straighten up. Ever had children that didn't quite do what you expected? Don't raise hands again, but uh, maybe you've had some kids that just didn't quite do what you wanted them to, and you felt some disappointment. I mean, you still love them, and you care about them, and you're overall pleased with them, but there's been those days, haven't there? Uh, as a preacher with preacher's kids, I mean, there's no hope for them. I regularly uh, joke about that, but you know, they kind of live in a fishbowl, and they go to middle school and they are in a fishbowl because everybody knows. In fact, people that don't know that they know, they know that they are preacher kids, right? And it's always fascinating to me that people know that I'm a pastor and folks that I don't even know. And it goes for my kids too. And, and there's times that my kids will disappoint you. They'll disappoint me. And disappointment is just part of the human experience, it seems, because we have expectations about how it's supposed to go, but life doesn't go the way we expect it to go. People don't do what we expect them to do. We don't get the things we expect to get, and so we often feel disappointed. There's another person that we can feel disappointed with, and that's with God. This is a pretty serious type of disappointment, and I wouldn't even suggest that it's sinful or, or even wrong. It's just there are times that you expect God to be one way or to do something for you or because of you or in spite of you, and he doesn't do it. And then when that happens, we feel disappointed. And did you know that this has been going on for a really long time, that people have felt disappointment with God? In fact, if you have ever felt disappointment with God, but you haven't been willing to be honest with it, maybe that's what you need to hear this morning, is to be honest with your disappointment with God. Now, you might be thinking, okay, uh, Sunday after Christmas, disappointment with God, what? Well, the reason we bring this up, that I bring this up, is because Luke chapter 2 is where pastors go for all of the good Christmas story material. There's a little bit in Matthew, but the vast majority of it, I mean, the the angels and the shepherds and all that good stuff, that's in Luke chapter 2. And at the very end of Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41, we get this interesting story about Jesus in middle school. In fact, it's the only story we have about Jesus' childhood outside of his birth and his fleeing to Egypt and coming back to Nazareth. This is the only story. Do you remember when you met that special so-and-so that you ended up either dating for a while or marrying? And you went and you met the family and they couldn't wait, it seemed, to embarrass them or even you by getting out the old pictures and telling all the goofy stories about, hey, remember that time when Sam thought he was getting a dozen donuts at Christmas and then he opened the pack? I mean, that's going to be the story that we tell Miss Little So-and-So when she shows up at the house. 
and we all love stories about childhood. We all love stories about what were you like when you were a kid? What did you do? What kind of you know, mischief did you get into? What are some of those stories? And all of us wish we had more stories about Jesus this way, didn't, don't we? I mean, what was he really like? Did he really not cry on Christmas Eve? Come on. I mean, there are some stories in the Apocrypha, and if you're from a Catholic uh, background, the Catholic Church has a few more books in it than the Protestant Church's Bible. And those books, a couple of them have really interesting stories about Jesus' childhood. And the reason that Protestants have decided, eh, these aren't quite on the same level as the other books, is because they don't feel like they're in the category of what Jesus' character is really like. For instance, there's this one story where he's, I guess he was out shopping for mom for Christmas. It was a busy time of year and all these hustle and bustle in little town of Bethlehem. And somebody bumped into him. And Jesus cursed them, and later that day they died. And that's not quite in line with Jesus' character, is it, in the rest of, of the New Testament? Another story, he's, he's outside, he's playing around with mud and puddles, and he's making you know these little mud birds, and he's really bored. And he just breathes life into the birds, and they, they fly away. And, you know, maybe that's, Interesting, but that doesn't even seem terribly much like his character. And he wouldn't just do something to do something. But we all crave for these stories from his childhood. And in the Bible, in the Gospels, the four tellings of his life story, there's only one. And we see Jesus in middle school. Now, in this passage, we find out that Jesus is 12. Any 12-year-olds in the house today? Lucky you. All right. Luke 2, verse 41. I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to look at some things in this story. The words should be up on the screen. Every year, which means every year, thank you, every year... Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Sounds like a rebellious teenager or preteen. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? It's such a good mother question, isn't it? Your father and I, you know, maybe she's got the finger going. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And as Jesus grew up, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God 
and people. Weird story, huh? I mean, that is such a strange story, but there's some stuff that's going in here, in on in here that is just fascinating. So first off, let's look at the first few verses. I'll just kind of make some comment and get through this thing quickly. Uh, they go to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, Passover is what we sort of have grabbed out a couple things from the Seder dinner, and, and we participate in a few things about Passover. But we don't connect Passover very well to uh, the, the Israeli, Jewish, Hebrew way of life like we should. In fact, Passover is like our Independence Day, our 4th of July. Passover was the day that the Hebrews came out of captivity, out of under the thumb of the Pharaoh, the, the, the most powerful man in the world. And it was that day that God rescued the Jews from Egypt and they became a people and a nation. It was that day that they celebrated. And whenever they went to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's population would swell by eight, nine, or ten times. And we learn in Exodus that there were three festivals that all the Jewish people had to return to Jerusalem for. But by the time of Jesus' life, there was only one that they regularly made it back to Jerusalem for, and that was Passover. And Passover, it was only required that the men return to Jerusalem. But here in the passage, we see that Mary and Joseph have made the journey to Jerusalem. And not just this year, but they go every year. These are devout, pious Jews. Every year they return to Jerusalem and they go to celebrate in Jerusalem for seven days, the feast of Passover. Kind of like an annual family vacation to Jerusalem with all sorts of religious pilgrimage components to it. Number one, you got to love a God that gives you a vacation you know, at least once and ideally three times a year where you would go and there was no work allowed to be done for seven days. You got to love a God that gives you time off, right? That one was free. That's not really the point of this passage. But they would go to Jerusalem and they would participate in this. And then you get this strange story about how they start leaving Jerusalem and Jesus isn't with them and they don't know it. Now, if that happened in my family, that's very intentional to leave somebody behind because our minivan, we know who's back there. And we also know who ain't in there with us. When I was a youth pastor, I would regularly take groups of kids down to Tijuana, Mexico. And every single stop, we made it a habit to count heads. Every stop to make sure we had all 30 of our little clan back in the vans. Nobody's still in the bathroom. Nobody's still in line buying a big gulp, so we have to stop in an hour. Nobody is left behind. Everybody's with us. Now, when you're a family of five, you don't have to count heads. You just listen to the noises. And if everybody's arguing like they should be, everybody's in the van, right? And you're ready to go. And only when it's quiet, you look back. What? Is everybody... Where... Oh, they're there. Okay, why aren't they fighting? What's going on? You know, and, and but this is not at all how Jesus and his family and his friends would have traveled. In fact, the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem was about eighty miles, so about from here to Fort Morgan, 
And this would have been done on foot. It was about a three days journey on foot. And in the ancient world, you didn't have state patrol and you didn't have uh, local police departments. So when you traveled somewhere, you caravaned, you got together with a lot of people because burglars and robbers and thieves aren't going to attack a group of 100, 200, 300 people. They'll attack a little family of three, but that's why you didn't travel in just a family of three. You traveled with the whole community because remember, this is the big, great festival. All Jewish people, all Jewish males are to return to Jerusalem. Lots of people are traveling. So they all would travel together. And not only that, life for, in the ancient world was far more like it is in rural America today, but even more so in that you lived close to your extended family. You saw them regularly. And so Jesus is traveling with, you know, grandpa and grandma and aunts and uncles and cousins. And he's traveling with John, who's soon to be the Baptist, his cousin. They're probably, you know, goofing around and hanging out and on their way to Jerusalem. And, and often in these parties, the women... And children, young children, would be at the front, and the men and the older boys would be at the back. And so you can just see how, you know, Joseph is at the back thinking, well, Jesus has got to be with Mary. You know, he must be up there with the gals. And Mary's probably thinking, well, he's 12 now. He's probably at the back with the guys. And then they, they stop to make camp that first night, and Joseph and Mary meet up. And, and, well, I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was with you where is he? And they search around and they can't find Jesus. They have lost Jesus. <laughs> and now they've got a day's journey back to Jerusalem. And so they sleep that night probably because it wouldn't have been safe for two people to travel at night. And so they sleep and then the next morning they get up and they make it all the way back to Jerusalem. And then they sleep that night if you can, while your kid's missing, right, moms? And the next day, they get up and they wander around Jerusalem trying to find Jesus. And they finally find him in the temple. And then it's at that point that they rebuke Jesus, right? I mean, they first take in what's going on. Jesus is sitting there. (laughs) Now think about this. If you've ever had a 12-year-old, They are just as anxious to find you as you are them, right? I mean, typically. And so Jesus is hanging out with the religious leaders and thinking, not only just, these are the top Jewish philosophers and religious scholars and thinkers in the world that he's hanging out with at the temple. And he's, He's impressing them. Did you see where it says they were amazed with his answers? Now that's an important phrase because there's a couple of important phrases that are going on. One is Jesus is, what's his posture? Is he standing? He's sitting. Now there's a couple of possible ways to interpret this. One might be he's a student sitting at the feet of a rabbi, but we know that rabbis taught by sitting down back then. We have it all wrong. I should be sitting down. You should be standing. See, that's how the ancient world worked. 
Jesus is sitting down, and the fact that he's giving answers, he's not only asking questions, but he's also giving answers. You know what going on, what's going on here? Jesus is teaching. They're amazed at his answers. They're amazed at his wisdom. I mean, come on. Wouldn't you be if a 12-year-old is sitting there with religious scholars holding his own? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> I've met a lot of 12-year-olds, and the best thing about 12-year-olds is they don't stay 12 years old. Right? And here's this 12 years old wowing the crowd. Now, why is 12 important? I mean, if you've ever known any Jewish, have there, has there ever lived in Ray a Jewish family? I don't know if there ever, not while I've been here. We had a kid named Andrew Udovitz, and Andrew got out of school all the time. Because, you know, all of his festivals and everything. And the rest of us goyim, which is Gentile in Hebrew. The rest of us goyim were at school and we're like, where's Andrew? You know, where's Andrew and his little beanie? And why isn't he here? And his last name's so fun to say, Udovitz, right? And so Andrew missed out on school all the time. He had to bring his, his, his box lunch every day because it was kosher and the food at school wasn't kosher. And Andrew was an interesting person. And his, his life was interesting, but it was foreign to me completely, but Andrew had a bar mitzvah. And bar mitzvahs happen when you're 13, and it's the official ceremony of becoming a man in the Jewish Hebrew community. Now we know when Jesus was 12, the bar mitzvah was yet to be created. Okay, they didn't have bar mitzvahs when Jesus was 12, 13 years old. That was several hundred years later that that was developed. But one thing they did have was you're, when you turn 12, a young man, 12 years of age, apprenticed that entire year with his father. He apprenticed with his father. He learned the family trade. And not only the family trade, he learned the religion. He went into an intense time of study of the Jewish religion. And so this trip to Jerusalem is significant for Jesus because all year long, since his 12th birthday on December 25th, or whenever, right? It's probably March April. But whenever that birthday was, when he turned 12, that year was an intense year of apprentice with dad, with Joseph. And so Jesus, since dad, Joseph was a carpenter, Jesus was going to become a carpenter. Now the, the Greek word for carpenter, it, it's more likely to be rendered builder. And so it could mean that he worked in stone or masonry, or it could mean that he worked in, in wood and, and carve, carving wood and, and assembling those kind of things. We do know that there was a couple of amazing cities that were built just miles away from Galilee where Jesus lived in the Decapolis. And most likely Jesus and Joseph were off building those cities out of stone. And Jesus would have started that when he was 12. And this trip to Jerusalem, Joseph is taking him into the temple and he's educating him about the temple in ways that he hadn't learned before because he was only 10 or he was only eight. But this year he's 12. And so Joseph is giving Jesus special instructions because as soon as he turns 13, he is a full-fledged male man in the community. That means he can, he can buy and sell land. He can buy and sell goods. He, can, he is a full-fledged economic guy. He can get married. He can have children at 13 in the ancient world. 
And so this is an intense year. And Jesus gets rebuked. Did you see how Mary started it? Your father and I. Now, why do women start their phrases that way? I remember my mom saying, just wait till your father gets home. I may not be here, mom. I might run away. Now, I think this time Mary begins it this way because out of all the years, Jesus, but this year, when you're apprenticing, when you're learning to be a man, when you're learning to honor your father above all things, this is the year that you put us through this? This is the year that you disappear, that you aren't with the group when we leave Jerusalem? And I think she's a little perturbed that Jesus doesn't seem terribly anxious about it. Have you ever had those experiences with your kids where you're just all up in arms and they're like, what? The semi wasn't going to hit me. It was a good 20 feet away. You know, if it, you don't, and you're clueless, you know. It's been three days. Jesus is really smart because he's hanging out with the smartest Hebrews in the Hebrew world, wowing them with his answers, and he's not at all concerned about seeing dear old mom and dad again. It never crossed his mind to go, oh, I missed the caravan. Better bolt. Oh, gosh, they're looking for me. Maybe I'll hang out at the gate. So right when they show up, they'll know where I'm at. And then Jesus is rebuked by mom, but he rebukes her back. Now, whose side are you on in this discussion, first off? Who do you identify with? My guess is you're far more emotionally connected with Mary and Joseph, right? Because we've all lost something special to us. We've all lost a kid. We've lost sight of a kid. We've had those moments where it's like, oh, where are they? I got to find them. And we are so sympathetic with Mary. And then Jesus has the nerve to say, why were you looking for me? Now, before you start thinking, ah, what a middle schooler, what a middle school answer. What were you looking for me? I've been here the whole time. I mean, it's not supposed to be read like that. It should be read. This is a man who knows what he's doing. This is not a clueless middle schooler who's so clueless that he doesn't even understand why dear old dad and mom are concerned. This is nearly a full-grown man who knows what he's about and what he's doing. And it's almost like he is surprised that they are looking for him and that it was so hard to find him. (laughs) Where are you looking for me? Why were you searching for me? I'm 12 years old. I'm supposed to apprentice under my father. Didn't you know I'd be at my father's house? Do you see the little play that Jesus is doing here? I'm supposed to apprentice. I'm 12 years old. But Joseph isn't my father, mom. Remember the story? (laughs) I am apprenticing Under my father. Didn't you know that's where I would be? 
This is the apprentice year. This is the year to do that I'm going to prepare for what I'm doing the rest of my life. Didn't you know that this would be where I'm at? Didn't you know I would be at my father's house? Now, how do they respond? How does the Bible say they responded? They don't know what's going on. They don't understand his answer. What? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, this is important because if you've been around Christianity at all during your lifetime, which all of you have, because we lived in a we live in a Christian or even a post-Christian nation. And that just means that Christianity has exerted amazing influence on our nation and on our culture. And so when you hear somebody call God Father, it's not at all alarming because we're all God's children. I mean, even Oprah Winfrey knows that apparently, right? And so whenever we watch TV and they say, we're all God's children, let's all get along, we all go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, he's our father, we're his kids, we all get that. But did you know that before Jesus says this in Luke chapter 2, if you look throughout the Old Testament, do you know how often people called God Father? Never. And the only time they called God Father was like he was the father of the nation. Nobody would ever dare to say, God is my father. It was too personal. It was too presumptuous. I mean, these were people that didn't even say his proper name. Because they didn't want to take it in vain. You're not about to call this guy by a pronoun. Father. I mean, this is, this is God we're talking about here. Nobody calls him father. That's why they're so confused. This isn't Joseph's house. What are you talking about? Father? What? Nobody talks like this. They were confused. And that's the point of the story. To confuse you. (laughs) To remind you that Jesus will constantly be confounding us. (laughs) That he he will confound our expectations of how he should behave. And how he should be treating us. I mean, just think. When you read this, don't you go, oh, isn't this like borderline sin? Isn't this like borderline not honoring your parents? I mean, is Jesus flirting here with with being rebellious? Oh. But you know, Jesus is basically saying, I don't have to obey you because I'm older than you. Only kid in human history that could say that. I don't have to obey you because I'm older than you. Before the world was, I am, says Jesus elsewhere. I don't have to obey you. I, and then Luke, to make sure you understand where this is going, he says, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. <laughs> Why was he obedient to them? He submitted himself to them. Why? Because he came to live the life that you and I should have lived. He didn't have to obey them. He was superior to them. He was God. He was with his father at 12 years of age. We don't know for sure, but it sure looks to me that he's starting to understand I'm the Messiah. I'm something special. I'm different. 
And there's no question about who he is or what he should do or how he should behave. He knows all that stuff at 12. Then he goes home and he submits to mom and dad because he came to live the life you and I should have lived. We should have lived the life in submission to our parents and we didn't. And Jesus, I think this story is told to us by Luke just to remind us that as soon as you think you got God figured out, he'll do something to confound you. I mean, think about Mary. She sings songs about how Jesus is going to liberate the Hebrews. And at Passover, nobody feels more a desire to be liberated than the Hebrews. I mean, this is the perfect time for Jesus to rise up, grab a sword, let's go. And he's hanging out with a bunch of old fuddy-duddies who talk about God all day. Mary, I think, by reading this verse, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. I think she's noting these things and she's starting to realize Jesus isn't going to be who I thought he was. And I think even Mary had to wrestle with some disappointment in her own son. Because remember her song that we talked about a few weeks ago? The Messiah is going to come and heads are going to roll and he's going to give bread to the poor and he's going to undethrone the kings of the world and he's going to come and break off the shackles from slaves and he's going to make all things right. And he can't even obey dear mom and dad and catch the caravan home. He can't even be the the perfect son where he's never late. I think even Mary had to wrestle through some of her expectations of who she thought this guy was going to be. In fact, someday I hope to preach on Mary and her life because I think you can see that that was an ongoing struggle for her, that Jesus wasn't quite living up to the Messiah she expected him to be. And it began when he was 12. Jesus will constantly be confounding our expectations of how he should behave and how he should be treating us. And yet, we are to trust him anyway. There is a story that happened in the 1950s, and Elizabeth Elliot wrote about it. She wrote about her story in a book called the, the, Through Gates of Splendor. And she later on wrote a book that was also, I think, autobiographical called No Graven Image. And this book came out in 1966. I don't know if anybody read this. I was not yet alive. But it came out in 1966. Elizabeth Elliot, who was the widow of Jim Elliot, who was killed in South America as a missionary. And her book, No Graven Image, it came out. And and the stories about this young single woman who becomes a missionary to an Indian tribe in South America. And the whole story is her learning the language and translating the Bible and working closely. And there's this man named Pedro that she befriends. And he's kind of the key piece to get her connected to these Indians. But at some point, he gets killed. And the book ends with his death 
and her being driven off away from the Indian people, unable to work any longer with them to share the message of Christ. And when that book came out in 1966, it was banned from bookstores and, and there were seminaries, pre- presidents and whatnot that didn't want their students to read it because they didn't like how it had this untidy ending because the idea was if you serve God, things will work out fine. I think Elizabeth Elliot in a work of fiction, in a novel, was sharing autobiographically details about her life. Because she had lived that. Her and her husband were serving God in South America, trying to bring the gospel to these Indian people. And those men, the night before they made contact with this tribe, they sang songs about God being their salvation and their shield and their protector. And they jumped in a plane, they landed, and five men were speared to death by those Indians trying to share the the. the the, the understanding, the name of Jesus Christ with them. Elizabeth Elliot knew too well that even when you follow God the way you think you should, things don't always end up the way you want it to. And it's confusing, isn't it? I mean, we think God should treat people who follow him or try to be the right thing or try to do the right things or try to raise their kids a certain way. And we think God is on the hook to take care of us and our own and our kids. And God regularly confuses us and says, no, I'm not on the hook. I'm nobody's. I am on nobody's hook. In fact, Elizabeth Elliot said this. I dethrone God if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my ideas. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. If you've ever felt disappointment with God, just know that you are in really good company. You are in the company of Mary and of Joseph, of Jesus' brothers, James, of John the Baptist who sent disciples to say, are you the guy we're expecting or is somebody else coming? You are in really good company if you've ever felt disappointment with God or with Jesus Christ. But understand this. He is going to constantly confound you. But you must trust him anyway. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived. We thank you that uh, that comes with a lot of interesting twists and turns because we think in our fallen minds that there is one way to live and a right way to live, but according to your standards, I'm sure we're often wrong. So we pray, Father, that as we enter into this new year and we confront things that might be confusing and painful and difficult, We pray that this little story from Jesus' adolescence, that it would prepare us for those times of pain and disappointment in our lives when we feel confused and frustrated with you. And that we would know 
that in those times we need to trust you. Because you went to the cross for us and you endured great pain and suffering on our behalf and you did not abandon us in that horribly dark hour. And you won't abandon us in the dark days that lie ahead. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. May the Lord smile upon you and give you peace. And may we all steal our hearts, trusting in Jesus Christ and no one else for our salvation, for our hope, no matter how dark or confusing or painful the days may be. Amen.